0: That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Book 9, Chapter 1 of War and Peace, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. War and Peace, Volume 3, by Leo Tolstoy, Translated by Elmer Maud. Book 9, 1812, Chapter 1. From the close of the year 1811, an intensified arming and concentration of the forces of Western Europe began. And in 1812, these forces—millions of men, reckoning those transporting and feeding the army moved from the west eastwards to the Russian frontier, toward which, since 1811, Russian forces have been similarly drawn. On the 12th of June, 1812, the forces of Western Europe crossed the Russian frontier and war began—that is, an event took place opposed to human reason and to human nature. Millions of men perpetrated against one another such innumerable crimes, frauds, treacheries, thefts, forgeries, issues of false money, burglaries, incendiarisms, and murders as in whole centuries are not recorded in the annals of all the law courts of the world, but which those who committed them did not at the time regard as being crimes. What produced this extraordinary occurrence? What were its causes? the historians tell us with naive assurance that its causes were the wrongs inflicted on the duke of oldenburg the non-observance of the continental system the ambition of napoleon the firmness of alexander the mistakes of the diplomatists and so on consequently it would only have been necessary for metternich brumyatsev or Talleyrand, between a levy and an evening party to have taken proper pains and written a more adroit note or for Napoleon to have written to Alexander, My respected brother, I consent to restore the duchy to the Duke of Oldenburg, and there would have been no war. We can understand that the matter seemed like that to contemporaries. It naturally seemed to Napoleon that the war was caused by England's intrigues, as, in fact, he said on the island of St. Helena. It naturally seemed to members of the English Parliament that the cause of the war was Napoleon's ambition to the duke of oldenburg that the cause of the war was the violence done to him to businessmen that the cause of the war was the continental system which was ruining europe to the generals and old soldiers that the chief reason for the war was the necessity of giving them employment to the legitimists of that day that it was the need of reestablishing les bons principes and to the diplomatist of that time that it all resulted from the fact that the alliance between Russia and Austria in 1809 had not been sufficiently well concealed from Napoleon, and from the awkward wording of Memorandum No. 178. It is natural that these, and a countless and infinite quantity of other reasons, the number depending on the endless diversity of points of view, presented themselves to the men of that day. But to us, to posterity, who view the thing that happened in all its magnitude and perceive its plain and terrible meaning, these causes seem insufficient. To us it is incomprehensible that millions of Christian men killed and tortured each other either because Napoleon was ambitious or Alexander was firm, or because England's policy was astute or the Duke of Oldenburg wronged. We cannot grasp what connection such circumstances have with the actual fact of slaughter and violence. Why, because the Duke was wronged, thousands of men from the other side of Europe killed and ruined the people of Smolensk and Moscow and were killed by them. To us, their descendants, who are not historians and are not carried away by the process of research and can therefore regard the event with unclouded common sense, an incalculable number of causes present themselves. The deeper we delve in search of these causes, the more of them we find. And each separate cause, or whole series of causes, appears to us equally valid in itself and equally false by its insignificance, compared to the magnitude of the events, and by its impotence, apart from the cooperation of all the other coincident causes, to occasion the event. To us, The wish or objection of this or that French corporal to serve a second term appears as much a cause as Napoleon's refusal to withdraw his troops beyond the Vistula and to restore the Duchy of Oldenburg. For had he not wished to serve, and had a second, a third, and a thousandth corporal and private also refused, there would have been so many less men in Napoleon's army and the war could not have occurred. Had Napoleon not taken offence at the demand that he should withdraw beyond the Vistula, and not ordered his troops to advance, there would have been no war. But had all his sergeants objected to serving a second term, then also there could have been no war. Nor could have there been a war had there been no English intrigues and no Duke of Oldenburg, and had Alexander not felt insulted, and had there not been an autocratic government in Russia, or a revolution in France, and a subsequent dictatorship and empire, or all the things that produced the French Revolution, and so on. Without each of these causes nothing could have happened. So all these causes, myriads of causes, coincided to bring it about. And so there was no one cause for that occurrence, but it had occurred because it had to. Millions of men, renouncing their human feelings and reason, had to go from west to east to slay their fellows just as some centuries previously hordes of men had come from the east to the west slaying their fellows. The actions of Napoleon and Alexander, on whose words the event seemed to hang, were as little voluntary as the actions of any soldier who was drawn into the campaign by lot or by conscription. This could not be otherwise, for in order that the will of Napoleon and Alexander, on whom the event seemed to depend, should be carried out, The concurrence of innumerable circumstances was needed without any one of which the event could not have taken place. It was necessary that millions of men, in whose hands lay the real power—the soldiers who fired or transported provisions and guns—should consent to carry out the will of these weak individuals, and should have been induced to do so by an infinite number of diverse and complex causes we are forced to fall back on fatalism as an explanation of irrational events—that is to say, events the reasonableness of which we do not understand. The more we try to explain such events in history reasonably, the more unreasonable and incomprehensible do they become to us. Each man lives for himself, using his freedom to attain his personal aims, and feels with his whole being that he can now do or abstain from doing this or that action but as soon as he has done it, that action performed at a certain moment in time becomes irrevocable and belongs to history, in which it has not a free but a predestined significance. There are two sides to the life of every man—his individual life, which is the more free, the more abstract its interests, and his elemental hive-life, in which he inevitably obeys laws laid down for him. Man lives consciously for himself, but is an unconscious instrument in the attainment of the historic universal aims of humanity. A deed done is irrevocable, and its result, coinciding in time with the actions of millions of other men, assumes an historic significance. The higher a man stands on the social ladder, the more people he is connected with, and the more power he has over others, the more evident is the predestination and inevitability of his every action. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. A king is history slave. History, that is, the unconscious, general hive-life of mankind, uses every moment of the life of kings as a tool for its own purposes. Though Napoleon at that time, in 1812, was more convinced than ever that it depended on him, verse ou ne pas verse la sang de la peuple, to shed or not to shed the blood of his peoples, as Alexander expressed it in the last letter he wrote him. He had never been so much in the grip of inevitable laws which compelled him, while thinking that he was acting on his own volition, to perform the hive-life, that is to say, for history, whatever had to be performed. The people of the West moved eastwards to slay their fellow-men, and by the law of coincidence Thousands of minute causes fitted in and coordinated to produce that movement and war reproaches for the non-observance of the continental system the duke of oldenburg's wrongs The movement of troops into prussia undertaken as it seemed to napoleon only for the purpose of securing an armed peace the french emperor's love and habit of war coinciding with his people's inclinations allurement by the grandeur of the preparations and the expenditure on those preparations and the need of obtaining advantages to compensate for that expenditure, the intoxicating honors he received in Dresden, the diplomatic negotiations which, in the opinion of contemporaries, were carried on with a sincere desire to attain peace, but which only wounded the self-love of both sides, and millions of other causes that adapted themselves to the event that was happening or coincided with it. When an apple has ripened and falls, Why does it fall? Because of its attraction to the earth, because its stalk withers, because it is dried by the sun, because it grows heavier, because the wind shakes it, or because the boy standing below wants to eat it. Nothing is the cause. All this is only the coincidence of conditions in which all vital organic and elemental events occur. And the botanist who finds that the apple falls because the cellular tissue decays and so forth, is equally right with the child who stands under the tree and says the apple fell because he wanted to eat it and prayed for it. Equally right or wrong is he who says that Napoleon went to Moscow because he wanted to, and perished because Alexander desired his destruction. And he who says that an undermined hill weighing a million tons fell because the last navvy struck it for the last time with his mattock In historic events the so-called great men are labels giving names to events and like labels They have but the smallest connection with the event itself Every act of theirs which appears to them an act of their own will is in an historical sense involuntary and is related to the whole course of history and predestined from eternity end of book 9 chapter 1 book 9 chapter 2 of war and peace volume 3 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 9 CHAPTER Two. On the 29th of May, Napoleon left Dresden, where he had spent three weeks surrounded by a court that included princes, dukes, kings, and even an emperor. Before leaving, Napoleon showed favor to the emperor, kings, and princes who had deserved it, reprimanded the kings and princes with whom he was dissatisfied, presented pearls and diamonds of his own, that is, which he had taken from other kings, to the empress of Austria and having, as his historian tells us, tenderly embraced the empress Marie-Louise, who regarded him as her husband, though he had left another wife in Paris, left her grieved by the parting which she seemed hardly able to bear. Though the diplomatist still firmly believed in the possibility of peace and worked zealously to that end, and though the emperor Napoleon himself wrote a letter to Alexander, calling him Monsieur Monfrère, and sincerely assured him that he did not want war, and would always love and honor him, yet he set off to join his army, and at every station gave fresh orders to accelerate the movement of his troops from west to east. He went in a traveling-coach with six horses, surrounded by pages, aides-de-camp, and an escort along the road to Posen, Thorn, Danzig, and Konigsberg. At each of these towns thousands of people met him with excitement and enthusiasm. The army was moving from west to east, and relays of six horses carried him in the same direction. On the 10th of June, coming up with the army, he spent the night in apartments prepared for him on the estate of a Polish count in the Wilkowiczki forest. Next day, overtaking the army, he went in a carriage to the Niemann, and changing into a Polish uniform, he drove to the river bank in order to select a place for the crossing. Seeing on the other side some Cossacks, Les Cossacks, and the wide spreading steppes in the midst of which lay the holy city of Moscow, Moscow la Vie Sainte, the capital of a realm such as the Scythia into which Alexander the Great had marched, Napoleon, unexpectedly and contrary alike to strategic and diplomatic considerations, ordered an advance, and the next day his army began to cross the Niemen. Early in the morning of the 12th of June, he came out of his tent, which was pitched that day on the steep left bank of the Niemen, and looked through a spyglass at the streams of his troops pouring out of the Vilkavisky forest and flowing over the three bridges thrown across the river. The troops, knowing of the Emperor's presence, were on the lookout for him, and when they caught sight of a figure in an overcoat and a cocked hat standing apart from his suite in front of his tent on the hill, they threw up their caps and shouted, Vive l'Empereur! and one after another, poured in a ceaseless stream out of the vast forest that had concealed them, and separating, flowed on and on by the three bridges to the other side. "'Now we'll go into action. Oh, when he takes it in hand himself, things get hot. By heaven! There he is! Vive l'Empereur! So these are the steppes of Asia. It's a nasty country all the same. Au revoir, Bochet. I'll keep the best palace in Moscow for you. Au revoir!' Good luck. Did you see the Emperor? Vive l'Empereur! Pur If they make me governor of India, Gerard, I'll make you minister of Kashmir. That's settled. Vive l'Empereur! Hurrah! 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 The Cossacks, those rascals, see how they run! Vive l'Empereur! There he is! Do you see him? I've seen him twice, as I see you now. The little corporal! I saw him give the cross to one of the veterans—'Vive l'Empereur!' came the voices of men, old and young, of most diverse characters and social positions. On the faces of all was one common expression of joy at the commencement of the long-expected campaign and of rapture and devotion to the man in the gray coat who was standing on the hill. On the 13th of June a rather small, thoroughbred Arab horse was brought to Napoleon he mounted it and rode at a gallop to one of the bridges over the Neiman, deafened continually by incessant and rapturous acclamations, which he evidently endured only because it was impossible to forbid the soldiers to express their love of him by such shouting, but the shouting which accompanied him everywhere disturbed him and distracted him from the military cares that had occupied him from the time he joined the army. He rode across one of the swaying pontoon bridges to the farther side turned sharply to the left and galloped in the direction of Kovno, preceded by enraptured, mounted chasseurs of the guard, who, breathless with delight, galloped ahead to clear a path for him through the troops. On reaching the broad river Vilja, he stopped near a regiment of Polish uhlans stationed by the river. Vive! shouted the Poles, ecstatically breaking their ranks and pressing against one another to see him. Napoleon looked up and down the river dismounted, and sat down on a log that lay on the bank. At a mute sign from him, a telescope was handed him, which he rested on the back of a happy page who had run up to him, and he gazed at the opposite bank. Then he became absorbed in a map laid out on the logs. Without lifting his head, he said something, and two of his aides-de-camp galloped off to the Polish uhlans. What? What did he say? was heard in the ranks of the Polish Uhlans when one of his aides-de-camp rode up to them. The order was to find a ford and to cross the river. The colonel of the Polish Uhlans, a handsome old man, flushed, and, fumbling in his speech from excitement, asked the aide-de-camp whether he would be permitted to swim the river with his Uhlans instead of seeking a ford. In evident fear of refusal, like a boy asking for permission to get on a horse, he begged to be allowed to swim across the river before the emperor's eyes. The aide-de-camp replied that, probably, the emperor would not be displeased at this excess of zeal. As soon as the aide-de-camp had said this, the old mustached officer, with happy face and sparkling eyes, raised his saber, shouted, Vivat! and, commanding the Ewans to follow him, spurred his horse and galloped into the river. He gave an angry thrust to his horse, which had grown restive under him, and plunged into the water, heading for the deepest part where the current was swift. Hundreds of ulins galloped in after him. It was cold and uncanny in the rapid current in the middle of the stream, and the ulins caught hold of one another as they fell off their horses. Some of the horses were drowned, and some of the men. The others tried to swim on, some in the saddle, and some clinging to their horses' manes. They tried to make their way forward to the opposite bank, and though there was a ford one-third of a mile away, were proud that they were swimming and drowning in this river, under the eyes of the man who sat on the log and was not even looking at what they were doing. When the aide-de-camp, having returned and choosing an opportune moment, ventured to draw the emperor's attention to the devotion of the Poles to his person, the little man in the gray overcoat got up and, having summoned Berthier, began pacing up and down the bank with him giving him instructions and occasionally glancing disapprovingly at the drowning Eulens who distracted his attention. For him it was no new conviction that his presence in any part of the world, from Africa to the steppes of Muscovy alike, was enough to dumbfound people and impel them to insane self-oblivion. He called for his horse and rode to his quarters. Some forty Uhlans were drowned in the river, though boats were sent to their assistance. The majority struggled back to the bank from which they had started the colonel and some of his men got across and with difficulty clambered out on the further bank and as soon as they got out in their soaked and streaming clothes they shouted vivat and looked ecstatically at the spot where Napoleon had been but where he no longer was and at that moment considered themselves happy. That evening, between issuing one order that the forged Russian paper-money prepared for use in Russia should be delivered as quickly as possible, and another that a Saxon should be shot, on whom a letter containing information about the orders to the French army had been found, Napoleon also gave instructions that the Polish colonel, who had needlessly plunged into the river, should be enrolled in the Légion d'honneur of which Napoleon was himself the head hwas vult perdere Those whom God wishes to destroy, He drives mad. End of Book 9, Chapter 2 Book 9, Chapter 3 Of War and Peace, Volume 3 By Leo Tolstoy, Translated by Elmer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. BOOK nine, CHAPTER three. The Emperor of Russia had, meanwhile, been in Vilna for more than a month, reviewing troops and holding maneuvers. Nothing was ready for the war that everyone expected, and to prepare for which the Emperor had come from Petersburg. There was no general plan of action. The vacillation between the various plans that were proposed had even increased after the Emperor had been at headquarters for a month. Each of the three armies had its own commander-in-chief, but there was no supreme commander of all the forces, and the Emperor did not assume that responsibility himself. The longer the Emperor remained in Vilna, the less did everybody, tired of waiting, prepare for the war. All the efforts of those who surrounded the Sovereign seemed directed merely to making him spend his time pleasantly and forget that war was impending. In June, after many balls and fets given by the Polish magnates, by the courtiers, and by the Emperor himself, it occurred to one of the Polish aides-de-camp in attendance that a dinner and ball should be given for the Emperor by his aides-de-camp. This idea was eagerly received. The Emperor gave his consent. The aides-de-camp collected money by subscription. The lady, who was thought to be most pleasing to the Emperor, was invited to act as hostess. Count Benningsen being a landowner in the Vilna province offered his country house for the fete and the 13th of June was fixed for a ball Dinner regatta and fireworks at Zakret, count Benningsen's country seat The very day that Napoleon issued the order to cross the Niemen, and his vanguard driving off the Cossacks crossed the Russian frontier Alexander spent the evening at the entertainment given by his aides-de-camp at Benningsen's country house it was a gay and brilliant fete Connoisseurs of such matters declared that rarely had so many beautiful women been assembled in one place Countess Bezakova was present among other Russian ladies who had followed the sovereign from Petersburg to Vilna and eclipsed the refined Polish ladies by her massive so-called Russian type of beauty the Emperor noticed her and honored her with a dance Boris Trubetskoy having left his wife in moscow, and being for the present en garçon, as he phrased it, was also there, and though not an aide-de-camp, had subscribed a large sum toward the expenses. Boris was now a rich man, who had risen to high honors, and no longer sought patronage, but stood on an equal footing with the highest of those of his own age. He was meeting Elaine in Vilna, after not having seen her for a long time, and did not recall the past, But as Elaine was enjoying the favors of a very important personage, and Boris had only recently married, they met as good friends of long-standing. At midnight dancing was still going on. Elaine, not having a suitable partner, herself offered to dance the mazurka with Boris. They were the third couple. Boris, coolly looking at Elaine's dazzling bare shoulders which emerged from a dark gold-embroidered gauze gown, talked to her of old acquaintances, and at the same time, unaware of it himself and unnoticed by others, never for an instant ceased to observe the emperor who was in the same room. The emperor was not dancing. He stood in the doorway, stopping now one pair and now another with gracious words which he alone knew how to utter. As the mazurka began, Boris saw that Adjutant-General Balashev, one of those in closest attendance on the emperor, went up to him and contrary to court etiquette stood near him while he was talking to a polish lady having finished speaking to her the emperor looked inquiringly at balashev and evidently understanding that he only acted thus because there were important reasons for so doing nodded slightly to the lady and turned to him hardly had balashev begun to speak before a look of amazement appeared on the emperor's face he took balashev by the arm and crossed the room with him unconsciously clearing a path seven yards wide as the people on both sides made way for him Boris noticed Arakcheev's excited face when the Sovereign went out with Balashev Arakcheev looked at the Emperor from under his brow and Sniffing with his red nose stepped forward from the crowd as if expecting the Emperor to address him Boris understood that Arakcheev envied Balashev and was displeased that evidently important news had reached the Emperor otherwise than through himself But the Emperor and Balashev passed out into the illuminated garden without noticing Arakcheev, who, holding his sword and glancing wrathfully around, followed some twenty paces behind them. All the time Boris was going through the figures of the mazurka, he was worried by the question of what news Balashev had brought and how he could find it out before others. In the figure in which he had to choose two ladies, he whispered to Elaine that he meant to choose Countess Patochka, who, he thought, had gone out onto the veranda, and glided over the parquet to the door opening into the garden, where, seeing Balashev and the Emperor returning to the veranda, he stood still. They were moving toward the door. Boris, fluttering as if he had not had time to withdraw, respectfully pressed close to the doorpost with bowed head. The Emperor, with the agitation of one who has been personally affronted, was finishing with these words, to enter Russia without declaring war. I will not make peace as long as a single armed enemy remains in my country." It seemed to Boris that it gave the Emperor pleasure to utter these words. He was satisfied with the form in which he had expressed his thoughts, but displeased that Boris had overheard it. "'Let no one know of it,' the Emperor added with a frown. Boris understood that this was meant for him and closing his eyes slightly bowed his head the Emperor re-entered the ballroom and remained there about another half-hour Boris was thus the first to learn the news that the French army had crossed the Niemen, and thanks to this was able to show Certain important personages that much that was concealed from others was usually known to him and by this means he rose higher in their estimation The unexpected news of the French having crossed the Niemen was particularly startling after a month of unfulfilled expectations and at a ball At first receiving the news under the influence of indignation and resentment the Emperor had found a phrase that pleased him Fully expressed his feelings and has since become famous on returning home at two o'clock that night he sent for his secretary, Shishkov and told him to write an order to the troops and a rescript to Field Marshal Prince Saltikoff, in which he insisted on the words being inserted that he would not make peace so long as a single armed Frenchman remained on Russian soil. Next day, the following letter was sent to Napoleon. Monsieur Monfrère, yesterday I learned that, despite the loyalty with which I have kept my engagements with Your Majesty, your troops have crossed the russian frontier and I have this moment received from petersburg a note in which count Loriston informs me as a reason for this aggression that your majesty has considered yourself to be in a state of war with me from the time Prince Karakin asked for his passports The reasons on which the duke de Bassano based his refusal to deliver them to him would never have led me to suppose that that could serve as a pretext for aggression in fact The ambassador, as he himself has declared, was never authorized to make that demand, and as soon as I was informed of it, I let him know how much I disapproved of it, and ordered him to remain at his post. If your Majesty does not intend to shed the blood of our peoples for such a misunderstanding, and consents to withdraw your troops from Russian territory, I will regard what has passed as not having occurred, and an understanding between us will be possible. In the contrary case, Your Majesty, I shall see myself forced to repel an attack that nothing on my part has provoked. It still depends on Your Majesty to preserve humanity from the calamity of another war. I am, Etc. Signed, Alexander. End of Book Nine, Chapter Three Book Nine, Chapter Four Of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Four. At two in the morning of the fourteenth of June, the Emperor, having sent for Balashev and read him his letter to Napoleon, ordered him to take it and hand it personally to the French Emperor. When dispatching Balashev, The Emperor repeated to him the words that he would not make peace so long as a single armed enemy remained on Russian soil, and told him to transmit those words to Napoleon. Alexander did not insert them in his letter to Napoleon, because with his characteristic tact he felt it would be injudicious to use them at a moment when a last attempt at reconciliation was being made, but he definitely instructed Balashev to repeat them personally to Napoleon. Having set off in the small hours of the 14th, accompanied by a bugler and two Cossacks, Balashev reached the French outposts at the village of Rikonti, on the Russian side of the Neman by dawn. There he was stopped by French cavalry sentinels. A French non-commissioned officer of Hussars, in crimson uniform and a shaggy cap, shouted to the approaching Balashev to halt. Balashev did not do so at once but continued to advance along the road at a walking pace. The non-commissioned officer frowned, and muttering words of abuse advanced his horse's chest against Balashev, put his hand to his sabre and shouted rudely at the Russian general, asking, Was he deaf that he did not do as he was told? Balashev mentioned who he was. The non-commissioned officer began talking with his comrades about regimental matters without looking at the Russian general. After living at the seat of the highest authority and power, after conversing with the emperor less than three hours before, and in general being accustomed to the respect due to his rank in the service, Balashev found it very strange here on Russian soil to encounter this hostile, and still more this disrespectful, application of brute force to himself. The sun was only just appearing from behind the clouds, the air was fresh and dewy. A herd of cattle was being driven along the road from the village, and over the fields the larks rose trilling, one after another, like bubbles rising in water. Balashev looked around him, awaiting the arrival of an officer from the village. The Russian Cossacks and bugler and the French hussars looked silently at one another from time to time. A French colonel of hussars, who had evidently just left his bed, came riding from the village on a handsome sleek gray horse accompanied by two hussars. The officer, the soldiers, and their horses all looked smart and well-kept. It was that first period of a campaign when troops are still in full trim, almost like that of peacetime maneuvers, but with a shade of martial swagger in their clothes and a touch of the gaiety and spirit of enterprise which always accompany the opening of a campaign. The French colonel with difficulty repressed a yawn but was polite and evidently understood Balashev's importance. He led him past his soldiers and behind the outposts, and told him that his wish to be presented to the emperor would most likely be satisfied immediately, as the emperor's quarters were, he believed, not far off. They rode through the village of Raikanti, past tethered French hussar horses, past sentinels and men who saluted their colonel and stared with curiosity at her Russian uniform, and came out at the other end of the village. The colonel said that the commander of the division was a mile and a quarter away, and would receive Balashev and conduct him to his destination. The sun had by now risen, and shone gaily on the bright verdure. They had hardly ridden up a hill, past a tavern, before they saw a group of horsemen coming toward them. In front of the group, on a black horse with trappings that glittered in the sun, rode a tall man with plumes in his hat and black hair curling down to his shoulders. He wore a red mantle and stretched his long legs forward in French fashion. This man rode toward Balashev at a gallop, his plumes flowing and his gems and gold lace glittering in the bright June sunshine. Balashev was only two horses' length from the equestrian with the bracelets, plumes, necklaces, and gold embroidery, who was galloping toward him with a theatrically solemn countenance, when Jullinay, the French colonel, whispered respectfully, "'The King of Naples!' It was, in fact, Murat, now called King of Naples. Though it was quite incomprehensible why he should be King of Naples, he was called so, and was himself convinced that he was so, and therefore assumed a more solemn and important air than formerly. He was so sure that he really was the king of Naples, that when, on the eve of his departure from that city, while walking through the streets with his wife, some Italians called out to him, Viva il re! Long live the king! He turned to his wife with a pensive smile and said, Poor fellows! They don't know that I am leaving them to-morrow. But, though he firmly believed himself to be king of Naples, and pitied the grief felt by the subjects he was abandoning, latterly, after he had been ordered to return to military service, and especially, since his last interview with Napoleon in Danzig, when his august brother-in-law had told him, I made you king that you should reign in my way, but not in yours, he had cheerfully taken up his familiar business and, like a well-fed but not overfat horse that feels himself in harness and grows skittish between the shafts, he dressed up in clothes as variegated and expensive as possible, and gaily and contentedly galloped along the roads of Poland without himself knowing why or whither. On seeing the Russian general, he threw back his head, with its long hair curling to his shoulders, in a majestically royal manner. looked inquiringly at the French colonel the Colonel respectfully informed his Majesty of Balashev's mission whose name he could not pronounce de Balashev said the King overcoming by his assurance the difficulty that had presented itself to the Colonel "Charmed to make your acquaintance general he added with a gesture of kingly condescension as soon as the King began to speak loud and fast His royal dignity instantly forsook him, and without noticing it, he passed into his natural tone of good-natured familiarity. He laid his hand on the withers of Balashev's horse and said, "'Well, general, it all looks like war,' as if regretting a circumstance of which he was unable to judge. "'Your Majesty,' replied Balashev, "'my master, the Emperor, does not desire war, and as your Majesty sees—' said Balashev, using the words Your Majesty at every opportunity, with the affectation unavoidable in frequently addressing one to whom the title was still a novelty. Murat's face beamed with stupid satisfaction as he listened to Monsieur de Balmashev. But royauté oblige, royalty has its obligations, and he felt it incumbent on him, as a king and an ally, to confer on state affairs with Alexander's envoy. He dismounted, took Belishev's arm, and moving a few steps away from his suite, which, waited respectfully, began to pace up and down with him, trying to speak significantly. He referred to the fact that the Emperor Napoleon had resented the demand that he should withdraw his troops from Prussia, especially when that demand became generally known and the dignity of France was thereby offended. Balashev replied that there was nothing offensive in the demand, because—but Murat interrupted him. "'Then you don't consider the Emperor Alexander the aggressor?' he asked unexpectedly, with a kindly and foolish smile. Balashev told him why he considered Napoleon to be the originator of the war. "'Oh, my dear general—' Murat again interrupted him—'with all my heart I wish the emperors may arrange the affair between them and that the war begun by no wish of mine may finish as quickly as possible," said he, in the tone of a servant who wants to remain good friends with another despite a quarrel between their masters. And he went on to inquiries about the Grand Duke and the state of his health, and to reminiscences of the gay and amusing times he had spent with him in Naples. Then suddenly, as if remembering his royal dignity, Murat solemnly drew himself up, assumed the pose in which he had stood at his coronation, and waving his right arm, said, "'I won't detain you longer, general. I wish success to your mission.' And with his embroidered red mantle, his flowing feathers, and his glittering ornaments, he rejoined his suite, who were respectfully awaiting him. Balashev rode on, supposing from Murat's words that he would very soon be brought before Napoleon himself. But instead of that, at the next village, the sentinels of De Vaux's infantry corps detained him as the pickets of the vanguard had done, and an adjutant of the corps commander, who was fetched, conducted him into the village to marshal De Vaux. End of Book Nine, Chapter Four Book Nine, Chapter Five Of War and Peace, Volume Three By Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 9, Chapter 5. Davo was to Napoleon what Erekcheyev was to Alexander, though not a coward like Erekcheyev. He was as precise, as cruel, and as unable to express his devotion to his monarch except by cruelty. In the organism of states, such men are necessary, as wolves are necessary in the organism of nature, and they always exist, always appear and hold their own, however incongruous their presence and their proximity to the head of the government may be. This inevitability alone can explain how the cruel Arakcheyev, who tore out a grenadier's moustache with his own hands, whose weak nerves rendered him unable to face danger, and who was neither an educated man nor a courtier, was able to maintain his powerful position with Alexander, whose own character was chivalrous, noble, and gentle. Balashev found Devaux seated on a barrel in the shed of a peasant's hut, writing. He was auditing accounts. Better quarters could have been found him, but Marshal Vaux was one of those men, who purposely put themselves in most depressing conditions to have a justification for being gloomy. For the same reason, they are always hard at work and in a hurry. How can I think of the bright side of life when, as you see, I am sitting on a barrel and working in a dirty shed? The expression of his face seemed to say. The chief pleasure and necessity of such men, when they encounter anyone who shows animation, is to flaunt their own dreary, persistent activity. Davo allowed himself that pleasure when Balashev was brought in. He became still more absorbed in his task when the Russian general entered, and after glancing over his spectacles at Balashev's face, which was animated by the beauty of the morning and by his talk with Marat, he did not rise or even stir, but scowled still more and sneered malevolently. When he noticed in Balashev's face the disagreeable impression this reception produced, Devaux raised his head and coldly asked what he wanted. Thinking he could have been received in such a manner only because Devaux did not know that he was adjutant-general to the Emperor Alexander, and even his envoy to Napoleon, Balashev hastened to inform him of his rank and mission. Contrary to his expectation, Devaux, after hearing him, became still surlier and ruder, ''Where is your dispatch?'' he inquired. ''Give it to me. I will send it to the Emperor.'' Balashev replied that he had been ordered to hand it personally to the Emperor. ''Your Emperor's orders are obeyed in your army, but here,'' said Devoe, ''you must do as you're told.'' And as if to make the Russian general still more conscious of his dependence on brute force, Devoe sent an adjutant to call the officer on duty. Balashev took out the packet containing the emperor's letter, and laid it on the table, made of a door with its hinges still hanging on it, laid across two barrels. Devaux took the packet and read the inscription. "'You are perfectly at liberty to treat me with respect or not,' protested Balashev. "'But permit me to observe that I have the honor to be adjutant general to His Majesty.' Devaux glanced at him silently, and plainly derived pleasure from the signs of agitation and confusion which appeared on Balashev's face. "'You will be treated as is fitting,' said he, and putting the packet in his pocket, left the shed. A minute later the marshal's adjutant, de Castre came in and conducted Balashev to the quarters assigned him. That day he dined with the marshal, at the same board on the barrels. Next day De Vaux rode out early, and, after asking Belashev to come to him, peremptorily requested him to remain there, to move on with the baggage train should orders come for it to move, and to talk to no one except Monsieur de Castray. After four days of solitude, ennui, and consciousness of his impotence and insignificance, particularly acute by the contrast with the sphere of power in which he had so lately moved, And, after several marches with the marshal's baggage and the French army, which occupied the whole district, Balashev was brought to Vilna, now occupied by the French, through the very gate by which he had left it four days previously. Next day the imperial gentleman-in-waiting, the Comte de Turenne, came to Balashev and informed him of the Emperor Napoleon's wish to honor him with an audience. Four days before. Sentinels of the Preobrazhensk regiment had stood in front of the house to which Balashev was conducted, and now two French grenadiers stood there, in blue uniforms, unfastened in front and with shaggy caps on their heads, and an escort of hussars and uhlans and a brilliant suite of aides-de-camp, pages, and generals, who were waiting for Napoleon to come out, were standing at the porch, round his saddle-horse and his mameluke rasta, Napoleon received Balashev in the very house in Vilna from which Alexander had dispatched him on his mission. End of Book Nine, Chapter Five Book Nine, Chapter Six, Of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 9, Chapter 6 Though Balashev was used to imperial pomp, he was amazed at the luxury and magnificence of Napoleon's court. The Comte de Turenne showed him into a big reception room, where many generals, gentlemen in waiting, and Polish magnates, several of which Balashev had seen at the court of the Emperor of Russia, were waiting. Duroc said that Napoleon would receive the Russian general before going for his ride. After some minutes, The gentleman-in-waiting, who was on duty, came into the great reception-room, and, bowing politely, asked Balashev to follow him. Balashev went into a small reception-room, one door of which led into a study, the very one from which the Russian emperor had dispatched him on his mission. He stood a minute or two, waiting. He heard hurried footsteps beyond the door, both halves of it were open rapidly. All was silent and then from the study the sound was heard of other steps, firm and resolute. They were those of Napoleon. He had just finished dressing for his ride, and wore a blue uniform, opening in front over a white waistcoat so long that it covered his rotund stomach, white leather breeches tightly fitting the fat thighs of his short legs and hessian boots. His short hair had evidently just been brushed but one lock hung down in the middle of his broad forehead. His plump white neck stood out sharply above the black collar of his uniform, and he smelled of eau de cologne. His full face, rather young-looking, with its prominent chin, wore a gracious and majestic expression of imperial welcome. He entered briskly, with a jerk at every step and his head slightly thrown back his whole short corpulent figure with broad thick shoulders and chest and stomach involuntarily protruding had that imposing and stately appearance one sees in men of forty who live in comfort it was evident too that he was in the best of spirits that day he nodded in answer to balashev's low and respectful bow and coming up to him at once began speaking like a man who values every moment of his time and does not condescend to prepare what he has to say but is sure he will always say the right thing, and say it well. "'Good day, General,' said he. "'I have received the letter you brought from the Emperor Alexander, and am very glad to see you.' He glanced with his large eyes to Balashev's face and immediately looked past him. It was plain that Balashev's personality did not interest him at all. Evidently only what took place within his own mind interested him. Nothing outside himself had any significance for him, because everything in the world, it seemed to him, depended entirely on his will. I do not and did not desire war, he continued, but it has been forced on me. Even now, he emphasized the word, I am ready to receive any explanations you can give me. And he began clearly and concisely to explain his reasons for dissatisfaction with the Russian government. Judging by the calmly moderate and amicable tone in which the French emperor spoke, Balashev was firmly persuaded that he wished for peace, and intended to enter into negotiations. When Napoleon, having finished speaking, looked inquiringly at the Russian envoy, Balashev began a speech he had prepared long before. "'Sire, the emperor my master,' but the sight of the emperor's eyes bent on him, confused him. You are flurried, compose yourself," Napoleon seemed to say, as with a scarcely perceptible smile he looked at Balashev's uniform and sword. Balashev recovered himself and began to speak. He said that the Emperor Alexander did not consider Karakin's demand for his passports a sufficient cause for war, that Karakin had acted on his own initiative and without his sovereign's assent, that the Emperor Alexander did not desire war and had no relations with England. Not yet," interposed Napoleon, and, as if fearing to give vent to his feelings, he frowned and nodded slightly, as a sign that Balashev might proceed. After saying all he had been instructed to say, Balashev added that the Emperor Alexander wished for peace, but would not enter into negotiations except on condition that— Here Balashev hesitated. He remembered the words the Emperor Alexander had not written in his letter but had specially inserted in the rescript to Saltykov, and had told Balashev to repeat to Napoleon. Balashev remembered these words, so long as a single armed foe remains on Russian soil. But some complex feeling restrained him. He could not utter them, though he wished to do so. He grew confused and said, On condition that the French army retires beyond the Neman. Napoleon noticed Balashev's embarrassment when uttering these last words. His face twitched, and the calf of his left leg began to quiver rhythmically. Without moving from where he stood, he began speaking in a louder tone, and more hurriedly than before. During the speech that followed, Balashev, who more than once lowered his eyes, involuntarily noticed the quivering of Napoleon's left leg, which increased the more Napoleon raised his voice. I desire peace, no less than the Emperor Alexander," he began. "'Have I not for eighteen months been doing everything to obtain it? I have waited eighteen months for explanations. But in order to begin negotiations, what is demanded of me?' He said, frowning and making an energetic gesture of inquiry with his small, white, plump hand. "'The withdrawal of your army beyond the Neman, sire,' replied Balashev. "'The Neiman?' repeated Napoleon so now you want me to retire beyond the Neiman only the Neiman repeated Napoleon looking straight at Balashev the latter bowed his head respectfully Instead of the demand of four months earlier to withdraw from Pomerania only a withdrawal beyond the Neiman was now demanded Napoleon turned quickly and began to pace the room you say the demand now is that I am to withdraw beyond the Neiman before commencing negotiations, but in just the same way, two months ago, the demand was that I should withdraw beyond the Vistula and the Odor, and yet you are willing to negotiate.' He went in silence from one corner of the room to the other, and again stopped in front of Balashev. Balashev noticed that his left leg was quivering faster than before, and his face seemed petrified in its stern expression. The quivering of his left leg was a thing Napoleon was conscious of. The vibration of my left calf is a great sign with me, he remarked at a later date. Such demands as to retreat beyond the Vistula and Oder may be made to a prince of Baden, but not to me, Napoleon almost screamed, quite to his own surprise. If you gave me Petersburg and Moscow, I could not accept such conditions. You say I have begun this war. But who first joined his army? The Emperor Alexander, not I. And you offer me negotiations when I have expended millions, when you are in alliance with England, and when your position is a bad one. You offer me negotiations. But what is the aim of your alliance with England? What has she given you?" He continued hurriedly, evidently no longer trying to show the advantages of peace and discuss its possibility but only to prove his own rectitude and power and Alexander's errors and duplicity. The commencement of his speech had obviously been made with the intention of demonstrating the advantages of his position and showing that he was nevertheless willing to negotiate. But he had begun talking, and the more he talked the less could he control his words. The whole purport of his remarks now was evidently to exalt himself and insult Alexander, just what he had least desired at the commencement of the interview. "'I hear you have made peace with Turkey?' Balashev bowed his head affirmatively. "'Peace has been concluded,' he began, but Napoleon did not let him speak. He evidently wanted to do all the talking himself, and continued to talk with the sort of eloquence and unrestrained irritability to which spoiled people are so prone. "'Yes.' I know you have made peace with the Turks without obtaining Moldavia and Wallachia. I would have given your sovereign those provinces, as I gave him Finland.' "'Yes,' he went on, "'I promised and would have given the Emperor Alexander Moldavia and Wallachia, and now he won't have those splendid provinces. Yet he might have united them to his empire, and in a single reign would have extended Russia from the Gulf of Bothnia to the mouths of the Danube.' Catherine the Great could not have done more," said Napoleon, growing more and more excited as he paced up and down the room, repeating to Balashev almost the very words he had used to Alexander himself at Tilsit. "'All that he would have owed to my friendship. Oh, what a splendid reign!' He repeated several times, then paused, drew from his pocket a gold snuff-box, lifted it to his nose, and greedily sniffed at it what a splendid reign the Emperor Alexander's might have been!" He looked compassionately at Balashev, and as soon as the latter tried to make some rejoinder, hastily interrupted him. "'What could he wish or look for that he would not have obtained through my friendship?' demanded Napoleon, shrugging his shoulders in perplexity. "'But no! He has preferred to surround himself with my enemies—and with whom? With Stein's, Armfeld's, Benningsons, and vincen Stein, a traitor expelled from his own country, Armfelt, a rake and an intriguer, Vincent Garoda, a fugitive French subject, Bennigsen, rather more of a soldier than the others, but all the same an incompetent, who was unable to do anything in 1807, and who should awaken terrible memories in the Emperor Alexander's mind. Granted that were they competent they might be made use of, continued Napoleon, hardly able to keep pace in words with the rush of thoughts that incessantly sprang up, proving how right and strong he was. In his perception the two were one and the same. But they are not even that! They are neither fit for war nor peace! Berkeley is said to be the most capable of them all, but I cannot say so, judging by his first movements. And what are they doing, all these courtiers? Fuel proposes, armfelt disputes. Beddington considers, and Barclay called on to act, does not know what to decide on, and time passes bringing no result. Pagradian alone is a military man. He's stupid, but he has experience, a quick eye, and resolution. And what role is your young monarch playing in that monstrous crowd? They compromise him and throw on him the responsibility for all that happens. A sovereign should not be with the army unless he is a general said Napoleon, evidently uttering these words as a direct challenge to the Emperor. He knew how Alexander desired to be a military commander. "'The campaign began only a week ago, and you haven't even been able to defend Vilna. You are cut in two and have been driven out of the Polish provinces. Your army is grumbling.' "'On the contrary, Your Majesty,' said Balashev hardly able to remember what had been said to him, and following these verbal fireworks with difficulty. "'The troops are burning with eagerness.' "'I know everything,' Napoleon interrupted him. "'I know everything. I know the number of your battalions as exactly as I know my own. You have not two hundred thousand men, and I have three times that number. I give you my word of honor,' said Napoleon, forgetting that his word of honor could carry no weight. I give you my word of honor that I have five hundred and thirty thousand men this side of the Vistula. The Turks will be of no use to you, they are worth nothing, and have shown it by making peace with you. As for the Swedes, it is their fate to be governed by mad kings. Their king was insane, and they changed him for another, Bernadotte, who promptly went mad, for no Swede would ally himself with Russia unless he were mad. Napoleon grinned maliciously and again raised his snuff-box to his nose Balashev knew how to reply to each of Napoleon's remarks and would have done so He continually made the gesture of a man wishing to say something, but Napoleon always interrupted him to the alleged insanity of the Swedes Balashev wished to reply that when Russia is on her side Sweden is practically an island but Napoleon gave an angry exclamation to drown his voice Napoleon was in that state of irritability in which a man has to talk, talk, and talk, merely to convince himself that he is in the right. Balashev began to feel uncomfortable. As envoy, he feared to demean his dignity and felt the necessity of replying. But as a man, he shrank before the transport of groundless wrath that had evidently seized Napoleon. He knew that none of the words now uttered by Napoleon had any significance and that Napoleon himself would be ashamed of them when he came to his senses. Balashev stood with downcast eyes, looking at the movements of Napoleon's stout legs and trying to avoid meeting his eyes. "'But what do I care about your allies?' said Napoleon. "'I have allies. The Poles. There are eighty thousand of them, and they fight like lions. And there will be two hundred thousand of them.' and probably still more perturbed by the fact that he had uttered this obvious falsehood, and that Balashev still stood silently before him in the same attitude of submission to fate. Napoleon abruptly turned round, drew close to Balashev's face, and, gesticulating rapidly and energetically with his white hands, almost shouted, "'Know that if you stir up Prussia against me, I'll wipe it off the map of Europe,' he declared, his face pale and distorted by anger and he struck one of his small hands energetically with the other. Yes, I will throw you back beyond the Davina and beyond the Dnieper, and will re-erect against you that barrier which it was criminal and blind of Europe to allow to be destroyed. Yes, that is what will happen to you. That is what you have gained by alienating me." And he walked silently several times up and down the room, his fat shoulders twitching. He put his snuff-box into his waistcoat pocket took it out again, lifted it several times to his nose, and stopped in front of Balashev. He paused, looked ironically straight into Balashev's eyes, and said in a quiet voice, "'And yet what a splendid reign your master might have had!' Balashev, feeling it incumbent on him to reply, said that from the Russian side things did not appear in so gloomy a light. Napoleon was silent, still looking derisively at him, and evidently not listening to him. Balashev said that, in Russia, the best results were expected from the war. Napoleon nodded condescendingly, as if to say, ''I know it's your duty to say that, but you don't believe it yourself. I have convinced you.'' When Balashev had ended, Napoleon again took out his snuff-box, sniffed at it, and stamped his foot twice on the floor as a signal. The door opened. A gentleman-in-waiting, bending respectfully, handed the Emperor his hat and gloves. Another brought him a pocket-handkerchief. Napoleon, without giving them a glance, turned to Balashev. "'Assure the Emperor Alexander from me,' said he, taking his hat, "'that I am as devoted to him as before. I know him thoroughly, and very highly esteem his lofty qualities. I will detain you no longer, General. You shall receive my letter to the Emperor." And Napoleon went quickly to the door. Everyone in the reception-room rushed forward and descended the staircase. End of Book Nine, Chapter Six Book Nine, Chapter Seven, Of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 9, Chapter 7. After all that Napoleon had said to him, those bursts of anger, and the last dryly spoken words, I will detain you no longer, General, you shall receive my letter, Balashev felt convinced that Napoleon would not wish to see him, and would even avoid another meeting with him, an insulted envoy. Especially as he had witnessed his unseemly anger. But to his surprise, Balashev received through Duroc an invitation to dine with the Emperor that day. Bessier, Colincourt, and Berthier were present at that dinner. Napoleon met Balashev cheerfully and amiably. He not only showed no sign of constraint or self-reproach on account of his outburst that morning, but on the contrary tried to reassure Balashev. It was evident that he had long been convinced that it was impossible for him to make a mistake, and that in his perception whatever he did was right, not because it harmonized with any idea of right and wrong, but because he did it. The Emperor was in very good spirits after his ride through Vilna, where crowds of people had rapturously greeted and followed him. From all the windows of the streets through which he rode, rugs, flags, and his monogram were displayed and the Polish ladies, welcoming him, waved their handkerchiefs to him. At dinner, having placed Balashev beside him, Napoleon not only treated him amiably, but behaved as if Balashev were one of his own courtiers, one of those who sympathized with his plans and ought to rejoice at his success. In the course of conversation he mentioned Moscow, and questioned Balashev about the Russian capital not merely as an interested traveler asked about a new city he intends to visit, but as if convinced that Balashev, as a Russian, must be flattered by his curiosity. "'How many inhabitants are there in Moscow? How many houses? Is it true that Moscow is called Holy Moscow? How many churches are there in Moscow?' he asked. And receiving the reply that there were more than two hundred churches, he remarked, why such a quantity of churches the Russians are very devout replied Balashev But a large number of monasteries and churches is always a sign of the backwardness of a people Said Napoleon turning to Colincourt for appreciation of this remark Balashev respectfully ventured to disagree with the French Emperor Every country has its own character said he But nowhere in Europe is there anything like that? Said Napoleon I beg your majesty's pardon returned Balashev besides Russia there is Spain where there are also many churches and monasteries This reply of Balashev's which hinted at the recent defeats of the French in Spain was much appreciated when he related it at Alexander's court, but it was not much appreciated at Napoleon's dinner where it passed unnoticed The uninterested and perplexed faces of the marshals showed that they were puzzled as to what Balashev's tone suggested. ''If there is a point we don't see it, or it is not at all witty,'' their expression seemed to say. So little was his rejoinder appreciated that Napoleon did not notice it at all, and naively asked Balashev through what towns the direct road from there to Moscow passed. Balashev, who was on the alert all through the dinner, replied that just as all roads lead to rome so all roads lead to moscow there were many roads and among them the road through poltava which charles the twelfth chose Balashev involuntarily flushed with pleasure at the aptitude of this reply But hardly had he uttered the word poltava before kolonkor began speaking of the badness of the road from Petersburg to moscow and of his Petersburg reminiscences after dinner they went to drink coffee in Napoleon's study, which, four days previously, had been that of the Emperor Alexander. Napoleon sat down, toying with his sevres coffee-cup, and motioned Balashev to a chair beside him. Napoleon was in that well-known after-dinner mood which, more than any reasoned cause, makes a man contented with himself and disposed to consider every one his friend. It seemed to him that he was surrounded by men who adored him and he felt convinced that, after his dinner, Balashev too was his friend and worshipper. Napoleon turned to him with a pleasant, though slightly ironic, smile. ''They tell me this is the room the Emperor Alexander occupied. Strange isn't it, General?'' He said, evidently not doubting that his remark would be agreeable to his hearer, since it went to prove his Napoleon's superiority to Alexander. Balashev made no reply and bowed his head in silence. Yes, four days ago in this room, Vitsingeroda and Stein were deliberating, continued Napoleon with the same derisive and self-confident smile. What I can't understand, he went on, is that the Emperor Alexander has surrounded himself with my personal enemies. That I do not understand. "'Has he not thought that I may do the same?' And he turned inquiringly to Balashev, and evidently this thought turned him back onto the track of his morning's anger, which was still fresh in him. "'And let him know that I will do so,' said Napoleon, rising and pushing his cup away with his hand. "'I'll drive all his Württemberg, Baden and Weimar relations out of Germany. Yes, I'll drive them out.' Let him prepare an asylum for them in Russia." Balashev bowed his head with an air indicating that he would like to make his bow and leave, and only listened because he could not help hearing what was said to him. Napoleon did not notice this expression. He treated Balashev not as an envoy from his enemy, but as a man now fully devoted to him, and who must rejoice at his former master's humiliation. And why has the Emperor Alexander taken command of the armies? What is the good of that? War is my profession, but his business is to reign and not to command armies. Why has he taken on himself such a responsibility?" Again Napoleon brought out his snuff-box, paced several times up and down the room in silence, and then, suddenly and unexpectedly, went up to And with a slight smile, as confidently, quickly, and simply, as if he were doing something not merely important, but pleasing to Balashev, he raised his hand to the forty-year-old Russian general's face, and taking him by the ear, pulled it gently, smiling with his lips only. To have one's ear pulled by the emperor was considered the greatest honor and mark of favor at the French court. Well, adorer and courtier of the emperor Alexander, Why don't you say anything said he as if it was ridiculous in his presence to be the adorer and courtier of anyone but himself Napoleon are the horses ready for the general he added with a slight inclination of his head in reply to Balashev's bow let him have mine he has a long way to go the letter taken by Balashev was the last Napoleon sent to Alexander Every detail of the interview was communicated to the Russian monarch, and the war began. END OF BOOK NINE CHAPTER SEVEN BOOK NINE CHAPTER EIGHT OF WAR AND PEACE VOLUME THREE BY LEO TOLSTOY TRANSLATED BY ELMER MAUD THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. Book Nine, Chapter Eight After his interview with Pierre in Moscow, Prince Andrew went to Petersburg, on business as he told his family, but really to meet Anatole Karaghan, whom he felt it necessary to encounter. On reaching Petersburg, he inquired for Karaghan, but the latter had already left the city. Pierre had warned his brother-in-law that Prince Andrew was on his track. Anatol Karagin promptly obtained an appointment from the Minister of War, and went to join the army in Moldavia. While in Petersburg, Prince Andrew met Kutuzov, his former commander, who was always well disposed toward him, and Kutuzov suggested that he should accompany him to the army in Moldavia, to which the old general had been appointed commander-in-chief. So Prince Andrew, having received an appointment on the headquarters staff, left for Turkey. Prince Andrew did not think it proper to write and challenge Karagin. He thought that if he challenged him without some fresh cause, it might compromise the young Countess Rostova, and so he wanted to meet Karagin personally in order to find a fresh pretext for a duel. But again failed to meet Karagin in Turkey, for soon after Prince Andrew arrived, the latter returned to Russia. In a new country, amid new conditions, Prince Andrew found life easier to bear. After his betrothed had broken faith with him, which he felt the more acutely the more he tried to conceal its effects, the surroundings in which he had been happy became trying to him, and the freedom and independence he had once prized so highly were still more so. Not only could he no longer think the thoughts that had first come to him as he lay gazing at the sky on the field of Austerlitz and had later enlarged upon with Pierre, and which had filled his solitude at Bogacharovo, and then in Switzerland and Rome, but he even dreaded to recall them and the bright and boundless horizons they had revealed. He was now concerned only with the nearest practical matters unrelated to his past interests, and he seized on these the more eagerly the more those past interests were closed to him. It was as if that lofty, infinite canopy of heaven that had once towered above him, had suddenly turned into a low, solid vault that weighed him down, in which all was clear but nothing eternal or mysterious. Of the activities that presented themselves to him, army service was the simplest and most familiar. As a general on duty on Kutuzov's staff, he applied himself to business with zeal and perseverance, and surprised Kutuzov by his willingness and accuracy in work. Not having found Kuragin in Turkey, Prince Andrew did not think it necessary to rush back to Russia after him, but all the same he knew that, however long it might be before he met Karaghan, despite his contempt for him and despite all the proofs he deduced to convince himself, that it was not worth stooping to a conflict with him, he knew that, when he did meet him, he would not be able to resist calling him out, any more than a ravenous man can help snatching at food and the consciousness that the insult was not yet avenged, that his rancor was still unspent, weighed on his heart and poisoned the artificial tranquillity which he managed to obtain in Turkey, by means of restless, plodding, and rather vainglorious and ambitious activity. In the year 1812, when news of the war with Napoleon reached Bucharest, where Kutuzov had been living for two months, passing his days and nights with a Wallachian woman, Prince Andrew asked Kutuzov to transfer him to the Western Army Kutuzov who was already weary of Bolkonsky's activity which seemed to reproach his own idleness Very readily let him go and gave him a mission to Barclay de Tolly. Before joining the Western Army which was then in May encamped at Dresa Prince Andrew visited bald hills which were directly on his way being only two miles off the Smolensk highroad During the last three years there had been so many changes in his life, he had thought, felt and seen so much, having travelled both in the east and the west, that on reaching bald hills it struck him as strange and unexpected to find the way of life there unchanged, and still the same in every detail. He entered through the gates with their stone pillars and drove up the avenue leading to the house as if he were entering an enchanted, sleeping castle. The same old stateliness, the same cleanliness, the same stillness reigned there, and inside there was the same furniture, the same walls, sounds and smell, and the same timid faces, only somewhat older. Princess Mary was still the same timid, plain maiden getting on in years, uselessly and joylessly passing the best years of her life in fear and constant suffering. Mademoiselle Bourienne was the same coquettish, self-satisfied girl, enjoying every moment of her existence and full of joyous hopes for the future. She had merely become more self-confident, Prince Andrew thought. De Salle, the tutor he had brought from Switzerland, was wearing a coat of Russian cut and talking broken Russian to the servants, but was still the same narrowly intelligent, conscientious and pedantic preceptor. The old prince had changed in appearance only by the loss of a tooth, which left a noticeable gap on one side of his mouth. In character, he was the same as ever, only showing still more irritability and skepticism as to what was happening in the world. Little Nicholas alone had changed. He had grown, become rosier, had curly dark hair, and when merry and laughing, quite unconsciously lifted the upper lip of his pretty little mouth just as the little princess used to do. He alone did not obey the law of immutability in the enchanted, sleeping castle. But though externally all remained as of old, the inner relations of all these people had changed since Prince Andrew had seen them last. The household was divided into two alien and hostile camps, who changed their habits for his sake and only met because he was there. To the one camp belonged the old prince, Mademoiselle Bourienne, and the architect. To the other, Princess Mary, de Salle, little Nicholas, and all the old nurses and maids. During his stay at Bald Hills, all the family dined together, but they were ill at ease, and Prince Andrew felt that he was a visitor for whose sake an exception was being made, and that his presence made them all feel awkward. Involuntarily feeling this at dinner on the first day, he was taciturn, and the old prince noticing this also became morosely dumb and retired to his apartments directly after dinner. In the evening, when Prince Andrew went to him, and trying to rouse him, began to tell him of the young Count Komensky's campaign, the old prince began unexpectedly to talk about Princess Mary, blaming her for her superstitions and her dislike of Mademoiselle Bourienne, who, he said, was the only person really attached to him. The old prince said that if he was ill it was only because of Princess Mary, that she purposely worried and irritated him, and that by indulgence and silly talk she was spoiling little Prince Nicholas. The old prince knew very well that he tormented his daughter and that her life was very hard, but he also knew that he could not help tormenting her and that she deserved it. Why does Prince Andrew, who sees this, say nothing to me about his sister? Does he think me a scoundrel, or an old fool, who without any reason keeps his own daughter at a distance and attaches this Frenchwoman to himself? He doesn't understand, so I must explain it, and he must hear me out," thought the old prince. And he began explaining why he could not put up with his daughter's unreasonable character. If you ask me, said Prince Andrew without looking up (he was censuring his father for the first time in his life), I did not wish to speak about it, but as you ask me, I will give you my frank opinion. If there is any misunderstanding and discord between you and Mary, I can't blame her for it at all. I know how she loves and respects you. Since you ask me, continued Prince Andrew becoming irritable, as he was always liable to do of late, I can only say that, if there are any misunderstandings, they are caused by that worthless woman, who is not fit to be my sister's companion." The old man at first stared fixedly at his son, and an unnatural smile disclosed the fresh gap between his teeth to which Prince Andrew could not get accustomed. "'What companion, my dear boy, eh? You have already been talking it over, eh?' "'Father, I did not want to judge said Prince Andrew, in a hard and bitter tone, but you challenged me, and I have said, and always shall say, that Mary is not to blame, but those to blame—the one to blame—is that Frenchwoman." "'Ah! he has passed judgment passed judgment,' said the old man in a low voice, and as it seemed to Prince Andrew, with some embarrassment, but then he suddenly jumped up and cried, "'Be off! Be off!' Let not a trace of you remain here." Prince Andrew wished to leave at once, but Princess Mary persuaded him to stay another day. That day he did not see his father, who did not leave his room and admitted no one but Mademoiselle Bourienne and Tekin, but asked several times whether his son had gone. Next day, before leaving, Prince Andrew went to his son's rooms. The boy, curly-headed like his mother and glowing with health, sat on his knee and Prince Andrew began telling him the story of Bluebeard, but fell into a reverie without finishing the story. He thought not of this pretty child, his son whom he held on his knee, but of himself. He sought in himself either remorse for having angered his father, or regret at leaving home for the first time in his life on bad terms with him, and was horrified to find neither. What meant still more to him was that, He sought, and did not find in himself, the former tenderness for his son which he had hoped to reawaken by caressing the boy and taking him on his knee. "'Well, go on,' said his son. Prince Andrew, without replying, put him down from his knee and went out of the room. As soon as Prince Andrew had given up his daily occupations, and especially on returning to the old conditions of life amid which he had been happy, Weariness of life overcame him with its former intensity, and he hastened to escape from these memories and to find some work as soon as possible. "'So you've decided to go, Andrew?' asked his sister. "'Thank God that I can,' replied Prince Andrew. "'I'm very sorry you can't.' "'Why do you say that?' replied Princess Mary. "'Why do you say that, when you are going to this terrible war and he is so old?' Mademoiselle Bourienne says he has been asking about you." As soon as she began to speak of that, her lips trembled and her tears began to fall. Prince Andrew turned away and began pacing the room. Ah, my God! My God! When one thinks who and what—what trash can cause people misery—he said with a malignity that alarmed Princess Mary. She understood that, when speaking of trash, he referred not only to Mademoiselle Bourienne, the cause of her misery, but also to the man who had ruined his own happiness. "'Andrew, one thing I beg, I entreat of you,' she said, touching his elbow and looking at him with eyes that shone through her tears. "'I understand you,' she looked down. "'Don't imagine that sorrow is the work of men.' Men are his tools." She looked a little above Prince Andrew's head with the confident, accustomed look with which one looks at the place where a familiar portrait hangs. Sorrow is sent by him, not by men. Men are his instruments. They are not to blame. If you think someone has wronged you, forget it and forgive. We have no right to punish. And then you will know the happiness of forgiving. If I were a woman I would do so, Mary. That is a woman's virtue. But a man should not and cannot forgive and forget," he replied, and though till that moment he had not been thinking of Karaghan, all his unexpended anger suddenly swelled up in his heart. "'If Mary is already persuading me to forgive, it means that I ought long ago to have punished him,' he thought, and giving no further reply. He began thinking of the glad, vindictive moment when he would meet Caraghan, who he knew was now in the army. Princess Mary begged him to stay one day more, saying that she knew how unhappy her father would be if Andrew left without being reconciled to him, but Prince Andrew replied that he would probably soon be back again from the army, and would certainly write to his father, but that the longer he stayed now, the more embittered their differences would become. Good-bye, Andrew. Remember that misfortunes come from God, and men are never to blame," were the last words he heard from his sister when he took leave of her. Then it must be so, thought Prince Andrew, as he drove out of the avenue from the house at Bald Hills. She, poor innocent creature, is left to be victimized by an old man who has outlived his wits. The old man feels he is guilty, but cannot change himself. My boy is growing up and rejoices in life, in which, like everybody else, he will deceive or be deceived. And I am off to the army. Why? I myself don't know. I went to meet that man whom I despise, so as to give him a chance to kill and laugh at me." These conditions of life had been the same before, but then they were all connected, while now they had all tumbled to pieces. Only senseless things, lacking coherence, presented themselves one after another to Prince Andrew's mind. End of Book Nine, Chapter Eight Book Nine, Chapter Nine, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. BOOK Nine, CHAPTER Nine. Prince Andrew reached the general headquarters of the army at the end of June. The first army, with which was the Emperor, occupied the fortified camp at Drissa. The second army was retreating, trying to effect a junction with the first one from which it was said to be cut off by large French forces. Everyone was dissatisfied with the general course of affairs in the Russian army but no one anticipated any danger of invasion of the Russian provinces, and no one thought the war would extend farther than the western, the Polish provinces. Prince Andrew found Barclay de Tully, to whom he had been assigned, on the bank of the Drissa. As there was not a single town or large village in the vicinity of the camp, the immense number of generals and courtiers accompanying the army were living in the best houses of the villages on both sides of the river over a radius of six miles. Barclay de Tolly was quartered nearly three miles from the Emperor. He received Bolkonsky stiffly and coldly, and told him in his foreign accent that he would mention him to the Emperor for a decision as to his employment, but asked him meanwhile to remain on his staff. Anatole Karaghan, whom Prince Andrew had hoped to find with the army, was not there. He had gone to Petersburg, but Prince Andrew was glad to hear this. His mind was occupied by the interests of the center that was conducting a gigantic war, and he was glad to be free for a while from the distraction caused by the thought of Karaghan. During the first four days, while no duties were required of him, Prince Andrew rode round the whole fortified camp, and, by the aid of his own knowledge and by talks with experts, tried to form a definite opinion about it. But the question whether the camp was advantageous or disadvantageous remained for him undecided. Already, from his military experience and what he had seen in the Austrian campaign, he had come to the conclusion that in war the most deeply considered plans have no significance, and that all depends on the way unexpected movements of the enemy that cannot be foreseen are met, and on how and by whom the whole matter is handled. To clear up this last point for himself, Prince Andrew, utilizing his position and acquaintances, tried to fathom the character of the control of the army and of the men and parties engaged in it. And he deduced for himself the following of the state of affairs. While the Emperor had still been at Vilna, the forces had been divided into three armies. First the army under Barclay de Tolly; secondly the army under Bagradian, and thirdly the one commanded by Tormasov. The Emperor was with the First Army, but not as Commander-in-Chief. In the orders issued it was stated Not that the Emperor would take command, but only that he would be with the army. The Emperor, moreover, had with him not a commander-in-chief staff, but the Imperial headquarters staff. In attendance on him was the head of the Imperial staff, Quartermaster General Prince Volkonsky, as well as generals, Imperial aides-de-camp, diplomatic officials, and a large number of foreigners, but not the army staff. Besides these, there were in attendance on the emperor without any definite appointments Arakcheyev, the ex-minister of war, Count Bennigsen, the senior general in rank, the grand duke Tsarevich Konstantin Pavlovich, Count Rumyantsev, the chancellor, Stein, a former Prussian minister, Armfelt, a Swedish general, Fuel, the chief author of the plan of campaign, Palucci, an adjutant general and Sardinian émigré, Volzogen, and many others. Though these men had no military appointment in the army, their position gave them influence, and often a corps commander, or even the commander-in-chief, did not know in what capacity he was questioned by Bennigsen, the Grand Duke, Arikcheyev, or Prince Volkonsky, or was given this or that advice, and did not know whether a certain order received in the form of advice emanated from the man who gave it, or from the Emperor, and whether it had to be executed or not but this was only the external condition. The essential significance of the presence of the emperor and of all these people, from a courtier's point of view, and in an emperor's vicinity all became courtiers, was clear to everyone. It was this. The emperor did not assume the title of commander-in-chief, but disposed of all the armies. The men around him were his assistants. Arikcheyev was a faithful custodian to enforce order, and acted as the sovereign's bodyguard. Bennigsen was a landlord in the Vilna province, who appeared to be doing the honors of the district, but was in reality a good general, useful as an adviser, and ready at hand to replace Barclay. The Grand Duke was there because it suited him to be. The Ex-Minister Stein was there because his advice was useful, and the Emperor Alexander held him in high esteem personally. Armfelt virulently hated Napoleon, and was a general full of self-confidence, a quality that always influenced Alexander. Paolucci was there because he was bold and decided in speech. The adjutants-general were there because they always accompany the emperor. And lastly and chiefly, Fuel was there because he had drawn up the plan of campaign against Napoleon, and, having induced Alexander to believe in the efficacy of that plan, was directing the whole business of the war. With Fuel was Volzogen, who expressed Fuel's thoughts in a more comprehensible way than Fuhl himself, who was a harsh, bookish theorist, self-confident to the point of despising everyone else was able to do. Besides these Russians and foreigners who propounded new and unexpected ideas every day, especially the foreigners who did so with a boldness characteristic of people employed in a country not their own, There were many secondary personages accompanying the army because their principles were there. Among the opinions and voices in this immense, restless, brilliant, and proud sphere, Prince Andrew noticed the following sharply defined subdivisions of tendencies and parties. The first party consisted of Fuel and his adherents—military theorists who believed in a science of war with immutable laws—laws of oblique movements, outflankings, and so forth. Fuel and his adherents demanded a retirement into the depths of the country in accordance with precise laws defined by a pseudo-theory of war, and they saw only barbarism, ignorance, or evil intention, in every deviation from that theory. To this party belonged the foreign nobles Vincent Geroda, and others, chiefly Germans. The second party was directly opposed to the first. One extreme, as always happens, was met by representatives of the other. The members of this party were those who had demanded an advance from Vilna into Poland, and freedom from all pre-arranged plans. Besides being advocates of bold action, this section also represented nationalism, which made them still more one-sided in the dispute. They were Russians. Bagradian, Urmalov, who was beginning to come to the front, and others. At that time a famous joke over Marlov's was being circulated, that, as a great favor, he had petitioned the Emperor to make him a German. The men of that party, remembering Suvorov, said that what one had to do was not to reason, or stick pins into maps, but to fight, beat the enemy, keep him out of Russia, and not let the army get discouraged. To the third party, in which the Emperor had most confidence, belonged the courtiers who tried to arrange compromises between the other two. The members of this party, chiefly civilians and to whom Arekcheyev belonged, thought and said what men who have no convictions, but wish to seem to have some, generally say. They said that, undoubtedly, war, particularly against such a genius as Bonaparte they called him Bonaparte now, needs most deeply devised plans and profound scientific knowledge, and in that respect Fuel was a genius, but at the same time it had to be acknowledged that the theorists are often one-sided, and therefore one should not trust them absolutely, but should also listen to what Fuel's opponents and practical men of experience in warfare had to say, and then choose a middle course. They insisted on the retention of the camp at Drissa according to Fuel's plan, but on changing the movements of the other armies though by this course neither one aim nor the other could be attained, yet it seemed best to the adherents of this third party. Of a fourth opinion the most conspicuous representative was the Tsarevich, who could not forget his disillusionment at Austerlitz, where he had ridden out at the head of the guards in his cask and cavalry uniform as to a review, expecting to crush the French gallantly but, unexpectedly finding himself in the front line, had narrowly escaped amid the general confusion. The men of this party had both the quality and the defect of frankness in their opinions. They feared Napoleon, recognized his strength and their own weakness, and frankly said so. They said, ''Nothing but sorrow, shame and ruin will come of all this. We have abandoned Vilna and Videpsk and shall abandon Drissa. The only reasonable thing left to do is to conclude peace as soon as possible, before we are turned out of Petersburg." This view was very general in the upper army circles, and found support also in Petersburg and from the Chancellor, Rumyantsev, who, for other reasons of state, was in favor of peace. The Fifth Party consisted of those who were adherents of Barclay de Tolly, not so much as a man, but as Minister of War and Commander-in-Chief. Be he what he may—they always began like that—he is an honest, practical man, and we have nobody better. Give him real power, for war cannot be conducted successfully without unity of command, and he will show what he can do, as he did in Finland. If our army is well organized and strong, and has withdrawn to Dressa without suffering any defeats, we owe this entirely to Barclay. If Barclay is now to be superseded by Benningsen, all will be lost for Bennigson showed his incapacity already in 1807. The sixth party, the Bennigsenites, said on the contrary that, at any rate, there was no one more active and experienced than Bennigson. And twist about as you may, you will have to come to Bennigson eventually. Let the others make mistakes now," said they, arguing that our retirement to Drissa was a most shameful reverse, and an unbroken series of blunders. The more mistakes that are made, the better. It will, at any rate, be understood all the sooner that things cannot go on like this. What is wanted is not some Barclay or other, but a man like Bennigsen, who made his mark in 1807, and to whom Napoleon himself did justice. A man whose authority would be willingly recognized, and Bennigsen is the only such man. The seventh party consisted of the sort of people who are always to be found especially around young sovereigns, and of whom there were particularly many round Alexander, generals and imperial aides-de-camp passionately devoted to the emperor, not merely as a monarch, but as a man, adoring him sincerely and disinterestedly, as Rostov had done in 1805, and who saw in him not only all the virtues but all human capabilities as well. These men, though enchanted with the sovereign for refusing the command of the army, yet blamed him for such excessive modesty, and only desired and insisted that their adored sovereign should abandon his diffidence and openly announce that he would place himself at the head of the army, gather round him a commander-in-chief staff, and consulting experienced theoreticians and practical men where necessary, would himself lead the troops, whose spirits would thereby be raised to the highest pitch. The eighth and largest group, which, in its enormous numbers, was to the others as ninety-nine to one, consisted of men who desired neither peace nor war, neither an advance nor a defensive camp at the Dressa or anywhere else, neither Barclay nor the Emperor, neither Fuell nor Bennigsen, but only the one most essential thing—as much advantage and pleasure for themselves as possible in the troubled waters of conflicting and intersecting intrigues that eddied about the Emperor's headquarters, it was possible to succeed in many ways unthinkable at other times. A man who simply wished to retain his lucrative post would to-day agree with fuel, tomorrow with his opponent, and the day after, merely to avoid responsibility or to please the Emperor, would declare that he had no opinion at all on the matter. Another, who wished to gain some advantage, would attract the emperor's attention by loudly advocating the very thing the emperor had hinted at the day before, and would dispute and shout at the council, beating his breast and challenging those who did not agree with him to duels, thereby proving that he was prepared to sacrifice himself for the common good. A third, in absence of opponents, between two councils would simply solicit a special gratuity for his faithful services well knowing, that at that moment people would be too busy to refuse him. A fourth, while seemingly overwhelmed with work, would often come accidentally under the emperor's eye. A fifth, to achieve his long-cherished aim of dining with the emperor, would stubbornly insist on the correctness or falsity of some newly emerging opinion, and for this object would produce arguments more or less forcible and correct. All the men of this party were fishing for rubles, decorations, and promotions, and in this pursuit watched only the weathercock of imperial favor, and directly they noticed it turning in any direction, this whole drone population of the army began blowing hard that way, so that it was all the harder for the emperor to turn it elsewhere. Amid the uncertainties of the position, with the menace of serious danger giving a peculiarly threatening character to everything, Amid this vortex of intrigue, egotism, conflict of views and feelings, and the diversity of race among these people, this eighth and largest party of those preoccupied with personal interests imparted great confusion and obscurity to the common task. Whatever question arose, a swarm of these drones, without having finished their buzzing on a previous theme, flew over to the new one and by their hum drowned and obscured the voices of those who were disputing honestly. From among all these parties, just at the time Prince Andrew reached the army, another, a ninth party, was being formed, and was beginning to raise its voice. This was the party of the elders—reasonable men, experienced and capable in state affairs—who, without sharing any of those conflicting opinions, were able to take a detached view of what was going on at the staff at headquarters, and to consider means of escape from this muddle, indecision, intricacy, and weakness. The men of this party said and thought that what was wrong resulted chiefly from the emperor's presence in the army with his military court, and from the consequent presence there of an indefinite, conditional, and unsteady fluctuation of relations, which is in place at court, but harmfully in an army. That a sovereign should reign but not command the army, and that the only way out of the position would be for the emperor and his court to leave the army that the mere presence of the emperor paralyzed the action of fifty thousand men required to secure his personal safety, and that the worst commander-in-chief, if independent, would be better than the very best one trammelled by the presence and authority of the monarch. Just at the time Prince Andrew was living unoccupied at Drissa, Shishkov, the secretary of state, and one of the chief representatives of this party, wrote a letter to the emperor, which Arakcheev and Balashev agreed to sign. In this letter, availing himself of permission given him by the emperor to discuss the general course of affairs, he respectfully suggested, on the plea that it was necessary for the sovereign to arouse a warlike spirit in the people of the capital, that the emperor should leave the army. That arousing of the people by their sovereign and his call to them to defend their country, the very incitement which was the chief cause of Russia's triumph, in so far as it was produced by the Tsar's personal presence in Moscow, was suggested to the Emperor and accepted by him as a pretext for quitting the army. End of Book Nine, Chapter Nine. Book Nine, Chapter Ten of War and Peace. Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book nine, chapter 10. This letter had not yet been presented to the Emperor when Barclay, one day after dinner, informed Bolkonski that the sovereign wished to see him personally to question him about Turkey, and that Prince Andrew was to present himself at Bennington's quarters at six that evening. News was received at the Emperor's quarters that very day of a fresh movement by Napoleon which might endanger the army. News subsequently found to be false. And that morning Colonel Michaud had ridden round the dress of fortifications with the Emperor, and had pointed out to him that this fortified camp, constructed by fuel, until then considered a chef-d'oeuvre of tactical science which would ensure Napoleon's destruction was an absurdity, threatening the destruction of the Russian army." Prince Andrew arrived at Benningsen's quarters, a country gentleman's house of moderate size, situated on the very banks of the river. Neither Bennigsen nor the Emperor was there, but Chernyshev, the Emperor's aide-de-camp, received Bolkonsky, and informed him that the Emperor, accompanied by General Bennigsen and Marquis Paolucci, had gone a second time that day to inspect the fortifications of the Drissa camp, of the suitability of which serious doubts were beginning to be felt. Chernyshev was sitting at a window in the first room, with a French novel in his hand. This room had probably been a music-room. There was still an organ in it, on which some rugs were piled, and in one corner stood the folding bedstead of Benningsen's adjutant. This adjutant was also there, and sat dozing on the rolled-up bedding, evidently exhausted by work or by feasting. Two doors led from the room, one straight on into what had been the drawing-room, and another on the right to the study. Through the first door came the sound of voices conversing in German and occasionally in French. In that drawing-room were gathered, by the emperor's wish, not a military council—the emperor preferred indefiniteness—but certain persons whose opinions he wished to know in view of the impending difficulties. It was not a council of war, but, as it were, a council to elucidate certain questions for the emperor personally. To this semi-council had been invited the Swedish general Armfelt, adjutant-general Volzogen, Vincent Garoda, whom Napoleon had referred to as a renegade French subject, Michaud, Toll, Count Stein, who was not a military man at all, and Fuel himself, who, as Prince Andrew had heard, was the mainspring of the whole affair. Prince Andrew had an opportunity of getting a good look at him, for Fuel arrived soon after himself, and in passing through to the drawing-room, stopped a minute to speak to Chernyshev. At first sight, Fuel, in his ill-made uniform of a Russian general, which fitted him badly like a fancy costume, seemed familiar to Prince Andrew, though he saw him now for the first time. There was about him something of Weyroder, Mack, and Schmidt, and many other German theorist-generals whom Prince Andrew had seen in 1805, but he was more typical than any of them. Prince Andrew had never yet seen a German theorist in whom all the characteristics of those others were united to such an extent. Fuel was short and very thin, but broad-boned, of coarse, robust build, broad in the hips and with prominent shoulder-blades. His face was much wrinkled and his eyes deep-set. His hair had evidently been hastily brushed smooth in front of the temples, but stuck up behind in quaint little tufts. He entered the room looking restlessly and angrily around as if afraid of everything in that large apartment Awkwardly holding up his sword he addressed Chernyshev and asked in German where the Emperor was One could see that he wished to pass through the rooms as quickly as possible Finish with the bows and greetings and sit down to business in front of a map where he would feel at home He nodded hurriedly in reply to Chernyshev, and smiled ironically, on hearing that the sovereign was inspecting the fortifications, that he, fueled, had planned in accord with his theory. He muttered something to himself abruptly and in a bass voice, as self-assured Germans do. It might have been, stupid fellow, or the whole affair will be ruined, or something absurd will come of it. Prince Andrew did not catch what he said, and would have passed on, but Chernyshev introduced him to Fuel, remarking that Prince Andrew was just back from Turkey, where the war had terminated so fortunately. Fuel barely glanced, not so much at Prince Andrew, as past him, and said, with a laugh, that must have been a fine tactical war, and, laughing contemptuously, went on into the room from which the sound of voices was heard. Fuel, always inclined to be irritably sarcastic, was particularly disturbed that day, evidently by the fact that they had dared to inspect and criticize his camp in his absence. From his short interview with Fuel, Prince Andrew, thanks to his Austerlitz experiences, was able to form a clear conception of the man. Fuel was one of those hopelessly and immutably self-confident men self-confident to the point of martyrdom as only Germans are, because only Germans are self-confident on the basis of an abstract notion—science, that is, the supposed knowledge of absolute truth. A Frenchman is self-assured because he regards himself personally, both in mind and body, as irresistibly attractive to men and women. An Englishman is self-assured as being a citizen of the best organized state in the world, and therefore, as an Englishman, always knows what he should do and knows that all he does as an Englishman is undoubtedly correct. An Italian is self-assured because he is excitable and easily forgets himself and other people. A Russian is self-assured just because he knows nothing and does not want to know anything, because he does not believe that anything can be known. The German self-assurance is worst of all stronger and more repulsive than any other, because he imagines that he knows the truth—science—which he himself has invented, but which is for him the absolute truth. Fuel was evidently of that sort. He had a science—the theory of oblique movements deduced by him from the history of Frederick the Great's wars—and all he came across in the history of more recent warfare seemed to him absurd and barbarous monstrous collisions in which so many blunders were committed by both sides that these wars could not be called wars, they did not accord with the theory, and therefore could not serve as material for science. In 1806, Fuell had been one of those responsible for the plan of campaign that ended in Jena and Auerstadt, but he did not see the least proof of the fallibility of his theory in the disasters of that war. On the contrary. The deviations made from his theory were, in his opinion, the sole cause of the whole disaster, and with characteristically gleeful sarcasm he would remark, There, I said the whole affair would go to the devil. Fuel was one of those theoreticians who so loved their theory that they lose sight of the theory's object, its practical application. His love of theory made him hate everything practical, and he would not listen to it. He was even pleased by failures, for failures resulting from deviations in practice from the theory only proved to him the accuracy of his theory. He said a few words to Prince Andrew and Chernyshev about the present war with the air of a man who knows beforehand that all will go wrong, and who is not displeased that it should be so. The unbrushed tufts of hair sticking up behind and the hastily brushed hair on his temples expressed this most eloquently. He passed into the next room, and the deep, querulous sounds of his voice were at once heard from there. End of Book Nine, Chapter 10 Book Nine, Chapter 11 Of War and Peace Volume 3 by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 9, Chapter 11. Prince Andrew's eyes were still following Fuel out of the room when Count Benningsen entered hurriedly and nodding to Bolkonsky, but not pausing, went into the study, giving instructions to his adjutant as he went. The Emperor was following him. And Benningson had hastened on to make some preparations and to be ready to receive the sovereign Chernyshev and Prince Andrew went out into the porch where the Emperor who looked fatigued was dismounting Marquis Palucci was talking to him with particular warmth and the Emperor with his head bent to the left was listening with a dissatisfied air the Emperor moved forward evidently wishing to end the conversation but the flushed and excited Italian, oblivious of decorum, followed him and continued to speak. "'And as for the man who advised forming this camp, the Drissa camp,' said Paolucci, as the Emperor mounted the steps and, noticing Prince Andrew, scanned his unfamiliar face, "'As to that person, sire,' continued Palucci desperately, apparently unable to restrain himself, "'the man who advised the Drissa camp... I see no alternative but the lunatic asylum or the gallows. Without heeding the end of the Italians' remarks, and as though not hearing them, the Emperor, recognizing Volkonsky, addressed him graciously. I am very glad to see you. Go in there where they are meeting and wait for me. The Emperor went into the study. He was followed by Prince Peter Mikhailovich Volkonsky and Baron Stein, and the door closed behind them. Prince Andrew taking advantage of the Emperor's permission Accompanied Paolucci whom he had known in Turkey into the drawing-room where the council was assembled Prince Peter Mikhailovich Volkonsky occupied the position as it were of chief of the Emperor's staff He came out of the study into the drawing-room with some maps which he spread on a table and put questions on which he wished to hear the opinion of the gentleman present what had happened was that news, which afterwards proved to be false, had been received during the night of a movement by the French to outflank the Drissa camp. The first to speak was General Armfelt, who, to meet the difficulty that presented itself, unexpectedly proposed a perfectly new position away from the Petersburg and Moscow roads. The reason for this was inexplicable, unless he wished to show that he too could have an opinion. But he urged that at this point the army should unite and there await the enemy. It was plain that Armfelt had thought out that plan long ago, and now expounded it, not so much to answer the questions put, which, in fact, his plan did not answer, as to avail himself of the opportunity to air it. It was one of the millions of proposals, one as good as another, that could be made as long as it was quite unknown what character the war would take. Some disputed his arguments, others defended them. Young Count Toll objected to the Swedish general's views more warmly than anyone else, and in the course of the dispute drew from his side pocket a well-filled notebook, which he asked permission to read to them. In these voluminous notes Toll suggested another scheme, totally different from Armfelt's or Fuel's plan of campaign. In answer to Toll, Paolucci suggested an advance and an attack, which he urged could alone extricate us from the present uncertainty and from the trap, as he called the Drissa camp, in which we were situated. During all these discussions, Fuell and his interpreter Volzogen, his bridge and court relations, were silent. Fuell only snorted contemptuously and turned away to show that he would never demean himself by replying to such nonsense as he was now hearing. So when Prince Volkonsky, who was in the chair, called on him to give his opinion, he merely said, "Why ask me, General Armfelt has proposed a splendid position with an exposed rear, or why not this Italian gentleman's attack? very fine, or a retreat also good? Why ask me said he why you yourselves know everything better than I do." but when volkonsky said with a frown that it was in the emperor's name that he asked his opinion fuel rose and suddenly growing animated began to speak everything has been spoiled everything muddled everybody thought they knew better than i did and now you come to me how men matters there is nothing to mend the principles laid down by me must be strictly adhered to said he drumming on the table with his bony fingers what is the difficulty nonsense childishness He went up to the map and speaking rapidly began proving that no eventuality could alter the efficiency of the drissa camp That everything had been foreseen and that if the enemy were really going to outflank it the enemy would inevitably be destroyed Palucci, who did not know German began questioning him in French Volzogen came to the assistance of his chief, who spoke French badly, and began translating for him, hardly able to keep pace with fuel, who was rapidly demonstrating that not only all that had happened, but all that could happen had been foreseen in his scheme, and that if there were now any difficulties, the whole fault lay in the fact that his plan had not been precisely executed. He kept laughing sarcastically. He demonstrated and at last contemptuously ceased to demonstrate, like a mathematician who ceases to prove in various ways the accuracy of a problem that has already been proved. Volzhogan took his place and continued to explain his views in French, every now and then turning to Fuel and saying, Is it not so, Your Excellency? But Fuel, like a man heated in a fight who strikes those on his own side, shouted angrily at his own supporter, Volzhogen, Well, of course! What more is there to explain? Paulucci and Michaud both attacked Volzhogen simultaneously in French. Armfeld addressed Fuel in German. Toll explained to Volkonsky in Russian. Prince Andrew listened and observed in silence. Of all these men, Prince Andrew sympathized most with Fuel, angry, determined, and absurdly self-confident as he was. Of all those present, evidently he alone was not seeking anything for himself nursed no hatred against anyone and only desired that the plan, formed on a theory arrived at by years of toil, should be carried out. He was ridiculous and unpleasantly sarcastic, but yet he inspired involuntary respect by his boundless devotion to an idea. Besides this, the remarks of all except fuel had one common trait that had not been noticeable at the Council of War in 1805. There was now a panic fear of Napoleon's genius, which, though concealed, was noticeable in every rejoinder. Everything was assumed to be possible for Napoleon, they expected him from every side, and invoked his terrible name to shatter each other's proposals. Fuel alone seemed to consider Napoleon a barbarian like everyone else who opposed his theory. But besides this feeling of respect, Fuel evoked pity in Prince Andrew. From the tone in which the courtiers addressed him, and the way Paolucci had allowed himself to speak of him to the Emperor, but above all, from a certain desperation in Fuul's own expressions, it was clear that the others knew, and Fuel himself felt, that his fall was at hand. And despite his self-confidence and grumpy German sarcasm, he was pitiable, with his hair smoothly brushed on the temples and sticking up in tufts behind. Though he concealed the fact under a show of irritation and contempt, he was evidently in despair that the sole remaining chance of verifying his theory by a huge experiment, and proving its soundness to the whole world, was slipping away from him. The discussions continued a long time, and the longer they lasted, the more heated became the disputes, culminating in shouts and personalities and the less it was possible to arrive at any general conclusion from all that had been said. Prince Andrew, listening to this polyglot talk and to these surmises, plans, refutations and shouts, felt nothing but amazement at what they were saying. A thought that had long since and often occurred to him during his military activities, the idea that there is not and cannot be any science of war, and that, therefore, there can be no such thing as a military genius, now appeared to him an obvious truth. What theory and science is possible about a matter the conditions and circumstances of which are unknown and cannot be defined, especially when the strength of the acting forces cannot be ascertained? No one was or is able to foresee in what condition our or the enemy's armies will be in a day's time and no one can gauge the force of this or that detachment. Sometimes when there is not a coward at the front to shout, ''We are cut off!'' and start running, but a brave and jolly lad who shouts, ''Hurrah!'' a detachment of five thousand is worth thirty thousand, as at Schöngrabern, while at times fifty thousand run from eight thousand, as at Austerlitz. What science can there be in a matter in which, as in all practical matters, Nothing can be defined, and everything depends on innumerable conditions, the significance of which is determined at a particular moment which arrives no one knows when. Armfeldt says, our army is cut in half, and Paulucci says, we have got the French army between two fires. Michaud says that the worthlessness of the Drissa camp lies in having the river behind it, and Fuel says that is what constitutes its strength. Toll proposes one plan, Armfeld another, and they are all good and all bad, and the advantages of any suggestions can be seen only at the moment of trial. And why do they all speak of a military genius? Is a man a genius who can order bread to be brought up at the right time, and say who is to go to the right and who to the left? It is only because military men are invested with pomp and power, and crowds of sycophants flatter power, attributing to it qualities of genius it does not possess. The best generals I have known were, on the contrary, stupid or absent-minded men. Bagration was best—Napoleon himself admitted that—and of Bonaparte himself—I remember his limited, self-satisfied face on the field of Austerlitz. Not only does a good army commander not need any special qualities, on the contrary, he needs the absence of the highest and best human attributes, love, poetry, tenderness, and philosophic inquiring doubt. He should be limited, firmly convinced that what he is doing is very important, otherwise he will not have sufficient patience, and only then will he be a brave leader. God forbid that he should be humane should love or pity or think of what is just and unjust it is understandable that a theory of their genius was invented for them long ago because they have power the success of a military action depends not on them but on the man in the rank who shouts we are lost or who shouts hurrah and only in the ranks can one serve with assurance of being useful so thought prince andrew as he listened to the talking and he roused himself only when Paolucci called him and everyone was leaving. At the review next day, the Emperor asked Prince Andrew where he would like to serve, and Prince Andrew lost his standing in court circles forever by not asking to remain attached to the sovereign's person, but for permission to serve in the army. End of Book 9, Chapter 11